in the in the interest of the program, we'll switch um, from this to that. Um, that ends up being Mike Sag. Um, Mike is a professor uh, at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Everyone knows Mike, I hope. Um, and we're going to do this as a as a panel. And so, may I ask the speakers who are going to participate in the panel to come up um, and um, in addition to the people who are in your program, I've uh, kind of seen an old friend in the audience, not so old, but I've seen a friend that I've known for a long time in the audience, um, uh, uh, Susan Cohn, who I still think of as from New York, but she is now in Chicago and, uh, and is a professor at Northwestern, um, and so absolutely able to participate in the panel. So we're, she'll be on our speaker list next year, I think. Uh, and, the, and the panel includes Benigna Rodriguez, uh, Susanna Nagy, uh, who you'll hear later, uh, does HCV work at Duke. Um, Joe, you've met. Benigno, you've met. Ken Sherman, you'll meet later, also does uh, hepatology at uh, Cincinnati, uh, where John Ferry used to be. Um, and I think then I'll turn it over to Mike. Great. Good. Thank you, Paul. Okay, this is our major focus of today's session, or the program on antiretroviral therapy. You'll notice that you got your handouts just now. Uh, the reason is that uh, we didn't want to uh, sort of expose the potential answers because this is all audience response, and we're going to go through cases together. I've instructed the panel that when I turn to them and ask for an opinion, they're to keep their comments to around 20 to 30 seconds to kind of keep the pace going here. And I have seven cases to go through. If I don't get to them all, that's okay. Um, we'll, do, we'll go in depth to the ones that we get to and uh, go from there. So without any further um, introduction, this first case is a 30-year-old guy who was diagnosed on a routine insurance exam. The past medical history is really unremarkable except for some hypertension that's been diet control. He's not on any meds. And if you tell him you think it's a good idea for him to go on therapy, he will do it with great passion. <laughs> so it turns out his viral load is 30,000 and the CD4 count is 650. Would you recommend starting therapy? Yes, no, or ask Osama bin Laden. Too late for that. Sorry. Go ahead and post. Could you imagine growing up with a name like Opie? <laughs> you ever thought of that? All right. So more than half of the audience would do this. Um, Ask how many would have done it five years ago. How many of you would have, show of hands, how many of you would have done this five years ago? No, no one. Okay, so what's changed? Joe, you want to take this? What, what do you think has uh, changed the most in the last five years in terms of either Inflammation, or what, what do you think is going on? Why, why are people starting earlier? I think there is data in the several papers that starting earlier is better, and there is a theoretical basis in terms of ongoing damage and inflammation. Okay. Which I think people are listening to. That's right. Within 30 seconds. Anybody on the panel want to try to represent the viewpoint of the 40% who said, no, I don't think I'd do it right now? It's okay if, you know, you can be like a lawyer and represent both sides. Susan? I think people really don't um, 
necessarily want to take meds every day and they feel they're infected and every time they take a pill they think I'm going to die. So many of them really are not ready per se. I mean, this guy sounds unusual, but he said he was ready. Um, I personally like to see patients um, follow them ongoing, see what the virus is doing. Is 30,000 today? Is it going to be 300,000 tomorrow? Is it going to be undetectable? And so it gives them a sense for what to expect. Uh, in the context of that, I certainly do heavy preventive counseling because we didn't let anybody else nor get a second virus, as we talked about earlier. So I think there's a role for um, holding back and give, giving them more information as time goes on. Okay. So I think it's uh, – I, I, I still think there's a bit of equipoise about this. It, the momentum is clearly moving to earlier intervention. The drugs are not nearly as – uh, intolerable as they were 15 years ago. Uh, we have data like you heard pretty much all morning about it, um, what the biology is sort of screaming at us. These long-term non-progressors may be progressing and uh, all that type of stuff. Um, so which of the following guys, this is just kind of a curiosity how many folks uh, have kept up with this, but of the following guidelines panels, which of them recommend treating with asymptomatic patients with CD4 counts from 500 and below. Um, go ahead and vote. Is it ISUSA, HHS, both, neither, or, or you don't know? Go ahead and vote. <laughs> All right, so in the keeping with the pattern of kids with weird names, you know, Bam Bam? Okay. So most people got the right answer. Uh, but it's really interesting how, I think it's because the HHS guidelines got a little convoluted with their, how many people um, uh, voted one way or the other, right? So they, they, they made a point of saying that there's a split opinion above 500, but they clearly said um, that, that 500 or below they should treat, but the intensity of the recommendation was different, and it kind of led to some confusion. That's why I brought this up. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this. But the reason, as we've already talked about, is that the pendulum is swe sweeping because of there's more and more evidence of the harmful effect of, of uncontrolled viremia, potentially, and uh, the, the treatment options are, are a little better. The reason's not to perhaps treat is earlier is because of maybe fear of drug toxicity over a long period of time. And there used to be this notion of preservation of treatment options, but in fact, cohort data suggests that treating later actually burns through regimens a little faster. And that could be an epiphenomenon of who showed up late and, and that they may not be as engaged as perhaps like this guy was who said, yeah, I'll do whatever you want me to do, doc, just tell me what to do. But this is to me the most compelling, and this is something Paul Wolberding and I talked about a couple of years ago when we were just hashing us out a little bit. Let's take this first case, CD4 count is 650, or waiting until the CD4 count is 500. If you start now at age 30, uh, that's what it looks like. And it will take probably about five years or so to get to 500, and then you'll be treating. And if people live a relatively normal lifespan starting this early, they're going to be on treatment at least to age 70, hopefully 80. And when you look at that, that's 40 years of therapy versus 35 years of therapy. Uh, what's the difference? I mean, really. And during that five-year period, it's only five years compared to 35 or 40 more. 
The question really is, is there harm? And all morning, you've been hearing about the potential of harm in that time period, that ongoing replication, even if it's at relatively low levels. And so that's what I think is kind of, when you put it into that kind of bird's eye perspective, it kind of, you sort of feel like you're arguing about angels dancing on the head of a pen, you know, 500 versus 650. Is it really that different? So what is the harm? And this is just a, a voting question, and, and just vote. You've already heard about aging. You're going to hear later this afternoon about cardiovascular events. We aren't going to talk today about malignancies too much or cognition directly. Um, you've already heard some about lymphoid tissue. Go ahead and vote about what you think is the most compelling reason, and I understand they overlap. Barbara Eden. Okay. So most people got right to the heart of the underlying mechanism. We've talked about that some. Benigno, you want to elaborate on how that inflammation may play into these other observations? Sure. So um, uh, as close we, to the mic if you can. Yeah. As we discussed earlier, um, I think this is indeed a compelling reason to uh, consider starting earlier. Um, not only uh, is inflammation related to the conventional way we uh, tended to think about HIV disease progression, but as, uh, as uh, we've seen today, uh, it's also a major determinant of the non-HIV related complications. So in a way, picking inflammation out of these options is a way of picking all of them because it is a linking factor that connects to uh, all of the other options. And I was going to say with regards to this case, uh, that one of the factors that I would take into account is whether or not this person had an additional risk profile that would suggest that this person was uh, uh, at risk for developing some of these other non-AIDS-related complications, and that might actually tip my hand and make me treat this person earlier. So what specifically would you do? I mean, as opposed to just generically treating, you would measure IL-6 or CRP? Oh, that's, or? That, that's a great question, and I'm, I'm We've, I don't think that we have the answer to that yet, uh, even though uh, we have this strong correlational data between some of these markers of inflammation and immune activation. We do not have the clinical data to say that indeed this should be used as a uh, determinant for what we do clinically. I think we will see those data um, more and more um, convincingly over the next few years, but I don't think we're there yet. And I should don't use those markers for clinical decisions. So, so maybe the where you might use it is where there's a patient who's kind of on the fence or you're kind of on the fence and you want to get a better sense. But that's going to be probably a, an unusual situation. Right? I, I think it's unusual. It would be unusual. And I would still use it only in the context of um, uh, the rest of the, of the clinical and history profile yeah. for that person. Okay. So... Does treating HIV lead to reduced transmission of HIV? This is just to kind of see if you were listening to the first talk today. Gosh, that one stumped me. Is that the Green Hornet? I don't. Oh, not, oh let's go to the Olmovich. Okay. <laughs> so 93% of you were listening. Yay. Um, 2% and 5% are kind of kinky. All right. Um, all right. Well, the, the, the main take-home point here is that, and this is really, I think, something that general, it really resonates with the general public. If you ever go to Capitol Hill or talk to staffers, this data, these data 
really resonate. And that is, we know that about 25% of people who are, of the universe of people in the United States who are HIV infected don't really know their status because they've never been tested. In my neck of the woods in Alabama, it's probably up to 40%. But that 25% nationally are responsible for 55 to 60% of the new transmissions annually. And that's where this momentum for test and treat really is coming from. And then you add to it the data from Tom Quinn and the Uganda cohort that showed there was a correlation between the amount of virus, this is untreated, and the likelihood of transmission. And then you add to that now the 052 data that you heard earlier from Connie that basically showed a 96% reduction in transmission and that I, I, some people call in the traditional conventional wisdom is treatment as prevention. I say treatment is prevention. And uh, that, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Now, Paul, do you want to comment on that? or do you No, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of weird, isn't it, that we're having this discussion even. I mean, you know, you think of other transmissible infections, TB as an example, and no one would question that treatment of TB decreases transmission of TB, right? Um, so why did it take us so long to come around to this, uh, to this point of view? And for the behavioral scientists uh, who have sort of been resisting, I think, in part maybe to protect their own specialty, uh, they still have jobs because at the end of the day, you know, all this is dependent on adherence. Uh, so I think there's, there's plenty of work for all of us in this. Right. John. You know, the, in 1996, we knew that if you treated the mother, she didn't transmit the right. virus to her unborn child. So that the, the kind of proof of concept was, has been there a long time. Right. Yeah. And Susan, you've done a lot of work with pregnant women over the years who have HIV. Um, let's, let's segue from John's last comment to pregnant women. Of course, we screen all of them nowadays. They have higher CD4 counts on entry than our average population because we're screening. So there's evidence that screening helps, but there still are people who say, well, treat the mom with the CD4 counts above 500 while she's pregnant, but then when she's through with her pregnancy, stop therapy. Do you advocate that, or do you, can you defend that? It's quite a com controversial area for the most part, and I think the, uh, the guidelines um, clearly say that any HIV-positive woman should be treated with heart uh, and be suppressed. And then um, we many encourage them to be treated for life because they get pregnant once, they can get pregnant again. You want to be um, in control when you get pregnant again. And this idea of pre-exposure of conceptual counseling is great and if people know they want to get pregnant and are willing to go on therapy before that, okay. But that's all most, as many of you know, um, certainly among HIV positive women, two-thirds of pregnancies are unplanned. Not necessarily unwanted, but unplanned. So it, it makes that, that strategy um, less viable. So, um, and it also, this translates all, also internationally in terms of women who are in the, um, the years where they're having children, it, there's good rationale for treating them and maintaining them on therapy. And certainly Promise is a study that's looking at this question of women that are over, over 500, I think it is, um, whether they are willing to be randomized to stay on this or to go off this. Right. Um, and hopefully we'll have a more concrete data to be able to provide a rationale either way. I don't want to second guess the outcome of the study too much, but I, I would know where I'm going to put my nickel on the outcome. And 
It's sort of like testing whether wearing a parachute when you jump out of an airplane is protected against bad outcome, but maybe not quite that extreme. But it's interesting that, that um, some of the population being recruited is being recruited domestically as well as internationally, and many women don't want to be in the position of being randomized. They may either decide they want yeah. to continue meds or not be on meds, but not want to, to take a throw a dice to decide that. That's a great point. Okay, let's move on. This is now a 30-year, it's a very similar story. Um, this is a 30-year-old woman, uh, understands treatment, wants to start. In this case, her viral load is 30,000, and CD4 counts 350, and almost everyone, even the WHO guidelines internationally, would suggest uh, doing this. You do a genotype, it's wild type, you, do it, you get a free CCR5 tropic assay, and it's R5. Um, with all that in mind, uh, what would be your first... Uh, regimen. Go ahead and vote. And now you have Ropliverine. Missed it by that much. Okay. Boosted PI. Still were on boosted PIs, and most people would not use. Um, I guess a Favarin's because she could become pregnant. Susanna, you want to comment on what you would have done here? Sure, yeah. So I certainly think in a 30-year-old who may have a risk of pregnancy, trying to stay away from um, a Favarin's would be ideal, unless, you know, you could get a really educator and make sure that she's protecting uh, herself from pregnancy. So I think there are a lot of options um, on here, but certainly a boosted PI or rotavivir or would be ideal in a patient who has underlying liver disease. Right, so 15% of people pick nevirapine, although her CD4 counts 350. I guess that's one that we probably wouldn't want to do. The, the guidelines there are that if the CD4 count in a woman is above 250, there's a much higher risk of that idiopathic uh, liver injury, et cetera. So this would, that would probably be a wrong answer, actually. Uh, if it were a man, you can get by with that uh, somewhat. But for women, 250 is kind of the ceiling. And I can't explain why that observation is there, but it's clear there. What about some of the newer drugs? Uh, what about uh, Repliverine or Maraviroc? Um, Benino, you mentioned in your talk that Maraviroc or R5 inhibitors may have some additional magical anti-inflammatory effects. Uh, sure. Not enough to make you jump on it just yet? N not, not really. Not in this setting. And, uh, and the reason for that... Uh, in my personal uh, opinion, I would not choose Maraviroc in this setting is because um, I think the first regimen is such an incredibly uh, valuable opportunity to bring somebody under uh, complete control that I, what I'm, among the things that I'm looking for in a first-line regimen is ease of administration, and uh, a Maraviroc-containing regimen is not. Okay. So, so you're going to go for a once-daily regimen. Now, what about, Susan, what about Repriverine, which... What might come out now is a, uh, and within a few months it'll probably be available as a single uh, capsule or single tablet with tenofovir, FTC, repliverine, uh, sort of instead of A-tripla, you might call it B-tripla. Um, <laughs> what would you, uh, would you give B-tripla here? Uh, I personally wouldn't. I think there are some excellent um, data to, to look at what ideal first residents were out there, and certainly the the large naive study done, being done through the ACTG, the Sokin, Rotavir um, versus Darunavir um, versus Azanavir um, with Truvada, uh, will give us more 
data as to whether all those are equivalent. Um, so I just wouldn't go somewhere else if you don't need to. Um, yeah. So there aren't any data in pregnant women to speak of with rolplivirine yet. They've done some animal studies that didn't show any uh, concerning toxicity. So it's whatever category C, I guess, or something when there's no data for or against, but nothing against, right? And, um, but you mentioned raltegravir, so let's, let's dig into that a little bit. So just 10% uh, of you said you would, but now I'm just asking a little bit differently. Uh, would there be a case where, like this where you might use raltegravir in a woman of childbearing age? And if so, would you use it once a day? She, remember, her viral load's 30,000, and as a sidebar, raltegravir at 25 milligrams, like it's been tested, works pretty well when the viral load is under 100,000. When it gets above 100,000, it tends to lose its oomph a little bit, sort of like a bacavir in that way. But 30,000 would be okay. But here we have raltegravir at that viral load. Would you use it once daily, twice daily, or you probably wouldn't use it at all? Let's go ahead and vote. I guess we're I'm kind of showing my age at the choice of the music here. <laughs> Although most of them have had revivals, right? Get smarts come back, you know. And there's Gilligan. Sorry. Right, so interesting. Um, some folks would use it once a day. Most would use it twice a day. Um, anybody want to comment on? Yeah, Paul. Well, I, mean, I, I, w I went for twice a day because I, you know, I think as we said. The first regimen is so important, and I, I think as a field we've we've learned, or I think we've learned to not pull our punches in terms of potency. And there's little question that once a day was a little less uh, potent overall than twice a day. And right. I think just the risk of, you know, again of losing not only that potentially, but part of your nuke backbone as well. Uh, I'd go twice a day. Right. So the, the, I, I wanted to use this as a lead-in because remember part of this mission of the, today's meeting is to update what's new, uh, not so much as a total review of the field, but what's new. And this was a study presented at the CROI meeting, and, and a number of you weren't able to attend that meeting. Um, it really compared once daily raltegravir at 800 milligrams with uh, tenofovir FTC versus raltegravir at a more standard dose of 400 twice a day. And what was striking about the study was that, number one, the overall success rate was very high. This is intent to treat at 48 weeks, and almost 90% of the patients on twice daily had success. That's including dropouts for toxicity or whatever, and 83% on the once daily. So there was a 6% or so difference between the two. Now, if you just stopped and paused and said, gosh, if this were 10 years ago and we had an 83% intent to treat success, we'd be, you know, celebrating. But in this case, comparing it to the other, there, it didn't have that. If you see in yellow right there, the small print on this study, um, the confidence interval was supposed to be the lower end of the bounds was 10. And so it just crept over that 10% to 10.7. Those of you on this side of the room, right there. Um, and, and so therefore, it was not non-inferior. <laughs> right. Okay. In other words, it was inferior. <laughs> um, right. And, uh, and then you could break it down by the greater than 100,000 or less than 100,000, which I think makes this question a little bit more interesting, is that might there be a patient who you would have a low viral load and maybe use it once daily? I, you know, the guidelines committee would say, no, you must use it twice daily. But I think we've all had patients in our practice that we have to modify a little bit. If the viral load was under 100,000, I was worried about them missing that second dose during the day. 
know, in a harm reduction kind of way, you know, you might consider using it once daily. Uh, Benigno, I see you nodding your head. An affirmation there? Yes, I, I, I think that, again, it's uh, all these factors enter into the decision-making process. And uh, if there is the particular patient that truly needs uh, a regimen that is coming in and has a low viral load, uh, it could potentially be an option. Right. So it's not going to be recommended uh, as such, but uh, that's one of the things. So let's move on. Um, our next case is the same woman, except now her viral load is 15,000, CD4 counts 370. She wants to start if you think it's okay, so of course you're going to probably say that. Except in this case, you get a baseline genotype, and there's a K103N. K103N. And because monogram messed up a little bit when you sent it to them, they gave you a phenotype as well, so there it is. Right? Now, CD4 counts 370. For those of you who want to push the button for nevirapine, don't do that. <laughs> Please. Okay. Uh, let's go ahead and vote on what you might use. Well, this really, I don't think there's been a revival of Bonanza. I don't think they can find anybody to play Hoss. Uh, I think they nobody could fit in that hat. Okay, so majority back with a boosted PI. No one said Nevirapine. Wow. That's fantastic. One percent said a What about etrovirine and replivirine? This this is the reason I brought this up. So there's a K one oh three N only. All right, Susan, you were shaking your head no. I wouldn't do a first line. I mean, we know that we start with even once a day, um, Lucid PI is uh, probably the uh, original choice, and I would wait with those. I wouldn't start out with a – one could use it, but I wouldn't use it. Okay. Any counter views? I'll, I'll give one if nobody else wants to, uh, just for the sake of airing out the discussion. I'm not trying to take a side here. But um, I, think, I think there's a lot of acceptable choices here. The study with etrovirine – uh, was done comparing second, first failure patients. So they'd already failed something, and then they went to boosted atazanavir versus etrovirine. And if only a K103N were there with nothing else, no nucleoside backbone weakness like this case, the drug worked roughly about as well. But that was such a small subset. The majority of people in that study who had resistance had a lot of resistance, a lot of backbone resistance, M184Vs, and other things. But replivirine was really designed, as was etrovirine, to really work against K103N mutations. And if you look at all the algorithms, just K103 only is full activity. And you can sort of see that, if I can go back here, sorry, well, maybe I shouldn't. You can see that in the, in the, uh, you can see that in the, uh, in the phenotype. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think it's wrong to use either one of those drugs in that setting even with a K103N. Uh, Benigno. Yeah, so if I have a question back. Uh, would the fact that these uh, lady acquired uh, resistant mutant uh, make you worry that she might have some other archival mutations Could. that are not shown in genotype? Yep, that's a possibility. That's a possibility. So if you, you have to, not that anybody does this in clinical practice, but you could do the 454 sequencing, which gets out single genomes, and you might find uh, a, a, a M184V, for example, that's also there. But the chances are that this would probably be successful, I think, at the end of the day. Let me move on to the next slide. Yeah, thanks. All right. 
Next case. Things get a little faster here, so you don't have to worry about time bogging down. Um, this is a complicated story that basically I'll tell you it's a woman who's 23 years old who gets an STD, right? And she shows up and she gets treated for the STD appropriately. But then they also notice that that, that was a couple weeks ago. And now she comes back with swollen tonsil, cervical lymphadenopathy, a low white count, predominantly lymphs or atypical lymphs, rapid HIV test is negative, the monospot's negative, rapid strep is negative. You know where we're going with this, right? So we'll skip to the case. You do an HIV RNA because you know this is probably acute seroconversion syndrome, and it is. So the question is, what do you do? You've identified this woman who's right at the beginning of the ramp up of the virus, two to, two to three weeks after her exposure. What do you do? Do you observe, treat empirically for acute HIV, order a resistance test and then treat, order a test and wait for the results before initiating therapy? Go ahead and vote. Anybody get that music? X-Files, right. So Maldor, uh, yeah, so 50% would treat and ask questions later. Another 36% would say, I want to be a little bit more careful here. I want to get, wait for the resistance test to get back. What's the panel think? Paul? I, I voted for two, but it was a mistake. I wanted to vote for three. Okay, well, that's all right. Well, <laughs> for the record, two is I now 9%, I didn't, and three is 51%. I didn't read the answers carefully enough. No, because I think I, I would – so my, my instinct was obviously I want to treat this person, and, you know, yeah, there might be some transmitted resistance. It would be very un, unlikely that she's got a broad protease resistance. You know, she might have 3TC resistance, but I think you could start with – uh, you know, a, a Truvada-based yeah. backbone with a boost, boosted PI without too much worry about it while you wait for the resistance right. to come back. Benigno, what do you think is going on in her gut right now? So, so here's what I oh, – oh, what's going – well? What's oh, no, going answer on? your question. So this is, this is two weeks later, and uh, what's happened already is that the majority, the whole majority of the gold uh, immune system is gone. Um, so we're too late to do anything about it. So you just throw up your hands and say, have a nice life? Well, it, uh, well here's what I thought. <laughs> I thought that the music was very appropriate to this case because <laughs> it's a mystery. Well, I see it's uh, an X-Files case. Having, gotcha. having said that, I would treat her. Okay. Would you treat before the resistance test result? Yes. Okay. Anybody feel differently? Anybody want to be a little bit more – go with the 36%? No, I would just say that it, it's really important to get a genotype before you start treatment or else you'll never know, perhaps, because yeah. the medicine is so wonderful now. You'll see suppression – Quite quickly, often. So um, I urge you to. Think that's better. why. That's why I made them <laughs> to change my mind. So pregnancy so as well, and the pregnancy right. issue is the same in that you, you identify someone who's pregnant, who's positive. You'll go ahead and treat first after obtaining the genotype and waiting for the results. And you may need to also um, your resident, but certainly get the genotype first. Right. I think that's a take-home point. That go ahead and get the genotype because you don't want to discover later that there's resistance, and you can modify. But resistance transmission depends on the, where you live. In Chicago, it's probably 
right around, the, around there. So there's a high likelihood it's going to be wild type, but it could be resistant. So just get a genotype, start the person on treatment. I think that's something else that's changed over the last five years. Wouldn't you agree that there was debate about, well, should we treat, should we not treat? And now I think with all the data that you heard from Benigno and Joe and, and others, that, that you, know, you really want to start treating a little bit earlier. I might also support the people who voted for the fourth option. Um, because as Benigno said, you, she's already, you know, burned up the galt. Um, and this idea that there's something really magical about now versus a week from now, yeah. you know, genotype doesn't take long to come back, and I'm not sure that you've really uh, lost that much in that time. Okay. If, if I may throw in one, one more factor that goes into that decision is the fact that, obviously, uh, uh, persons during acute infection are orders of magnitude more likely to transmit HIV to others. Uh, so there's also a, a public health right. benefit to do it. And a lot of transmission happens then, John? I think it's important to recognize that early treatment to date has not been shown to convert someone into a functional cure. That's right. true. You know, they, they, if you stop, they're going to come right back to whatever their set point is. And hold that thought because we're going to get to that okay. in another question. But, no, that's good. Susan? One other point is here's a woman who's young had SCDs, she may not be registered. So that may be another reason to gauge her receptiveness and willingness to be adherent. If not, it may be better to get the genotype and work on counseling. Right, so it all has to be individualized. I don't know if people have ever heard of this staging classification. This is called the FEBIG classification. It's about seroconversion. But in essence, she would be about right here, on like at the peak of the curve where the HIV RNA is positive, maybe the P24 antigen, but clearly the antibodies haven't kicked in yet. You had a rapid test that was negative in the ER. It, you know, maybe a more sensitive antibody test might pick up a little bit of reactivity. But this happens all in the first 10 to 40 days, and then there's reequilibration. After that point, neutralizing antibodies are produced, and you start getting virologic escape, and the virus starts to mutate under the influence of immune system pressure. And by treating at this very early stage, you basically freeze the virus at whatever stage it's at because it's not going to be replicating. And the immune system, in my mind, has a chance to respond to the virus that it was exposed to and kind of create an area of, of, of uh, some degree of equilibrium that, that I think would be advantageous is another reason to treat a little bit earlier there. So which regimen would you use? Now, this is a 23-year-old, sexually active, childbearing uh, potential, uh, but has acute seroconversion syndrome. Uh, a lot of you pick boosted PI. Now you can get specific about which one. Or do you want to use more than one drug? She has R5-tropic virus. I didn't tell you that, but that's usually what's transmitted, by the way. It's almost always R5 for reasons that well, there's some hypothetical reasons we won't go into. But um, let's go ahead and, and vote. Whoops. People already voted. <laughs> Oh, can we go back? Can we reset that or just hit it again? Okay, here we go. Let's vote. Okay. All right, wow. All right, most people would use a PI boost, so that's consistent. Nobody went with the Favarins. That's interesting. Uh, some with Rotegravir. But only 5% went with the five-drug power regimen. It wasn't me. All right. 
Well, you know, the reason I put this question up was twofold. Some people think that you need extra, extra, extra help in treating all this virus. And so there was actually a study presented at Croy looking at MegaHeart, right, the, the big, the, you know, five or, or maybe 20 drugs, I don't know. Um, they randomized early patients to either receive tenofovir with atazanavir or darunavir, was the patient and the provider's choice. Then they were randomized to either just go with that or have maraviroc and raltegravir added. So like a super regimen versus a regular regimen. And the punchline is the regular regimen did just fine. You didn't need the extra two drugs. And so that, what that's saying, it's sort of like antimicrobial therapy that you can only kill the bug once when you're using antibiotics, right? <laughs> you know, you got gonorrhea, you whacked it with ceftriaxone, it's gone. You can add all the extra drugs you want. You already killed it. You can only kill it once. In this case, in this case, you're protecting the uninfected cells from becoming infected. And even though there's a milieu of a lot of activated cells, a lot of targets, you get good enough protection. You get actually really good protection just with your regular regimen. And a corollary of this that I don't have a question on was also presented at this meeting, asking the question, does intensification of an existing regimen, somebody's less than 50, does that add more to suppression? In other words, is there some sneaking by of ongoing replication at some low level? And all the evidence so far sort of presented says no. Adding extra drugs doesn't stop additional replication because there, there ain't much additional replication sneaking by. So it seems like three drugs with our current regimens are with, with wild type or susceptible virus is plenty good. And it doesn't change reservoirs either. And it doesn't change the reservoir either. Okay. So now here's another question related to this, and this gets back to what was John was alluding to. So she's done well. Uh, she's a patient who, who gets it, said, yeah, I want to be on treatment, takes her medicine regularly. And she's asymptomatic. Viral load is now less than 50. Her CD4 count is bumped up to 680. Doing fine. Happy. How long would you continue her regimen? For another six months to get her out to almost a year, to the full year? Would you, would you uh, give her two years, stop at some other time, or just continue her medicines? Go ahead and vote. I know this wasn't it, but I'm just somehow hearing Mel Brooks in the background. I'm not sure why. <laughs> what was it? Sounds grandiose. What was it? I'm not sure. Did anybody know what that was? Fanfare for Mel Brooks? Uh, I don't um. know. All right. So, wow, this is striking. I mean, it's hardly ever we get anybody. I mean, this is like 96% agree it will continue. It's probably it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, all right, fine. That, that's what I would have voted. But I guess that question, this is another one from five years ago, yeah. right? Paul, you ran yeah, a study yeah, yeah. that stopped therapy. Yeah. How, how could you be so wrong? <laughs> it's happened many times. Uh, okay. Well, we won't spend much time on this. There isn't a right answer. I mean, there's not a data-driven answer. But as John was alluding to earlier, when you stop therapy, it's like, whoop, you're starting back over again right where you left off. So... To my mind, whatever advantage you had of starting so early in terms of freezing the genetic variation, freezing, you know, all the damage, now you're just letting it loose again. And there's studies that actually show that when you stop, sometimes you get a recurrence of the acute seroconversion syndrome. They get sick again. So I, I don't see a reason to stop personally. I think the 
you know, the, the Rosenberg paper it suggested that some people did well, um, and that they had a lower set point, and they, and they kept that for periods of time. But I think all the data says that, that those were unique patients. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Joe? So there have been a couple of studies that looked at randomized treatment periods of one year in, in people with very early HIV infection. We have one, but we don't have the data yet. There was a trial reported at CROI this year from the Netherlands where they looked at people who had been infected for three months or less, and they had two different treatment arms that led to the same results, which were that people given one year or 24 weeks or uh, 60 weeks, I think, of therapy and then stopped and followed. The treated groups had about three extra years before they progressed to a CD4 count of 350 compared to the observed, or the observed group. Right. Um, and, and 350 and then, so is an old... So there was that benefit if it was really a benefit because it goes back to the question you raised earlier. Right. What's three years out of yep. 40? It, so it doesn't... Yeah, so this audience is... All over it. Okay, good. I think one, I'll skip that. Yeah, sorry. Just one, one additional uh, uh, thing to consider is that uh, there have been uh, multiple attempts at uh, adding something to antiretrovirals um, during acute infection to see if that makes a difference. Uh, with the most successful, successful example being uh, cyclosporin um, during acute infection in study by GP Pantaleo which showed that indeed adding cyclosporin uh, led to a decrease in the set point, the viral set point, and the rate of disease progression afterwards. Uh, but those data have neither been reproduced nor have they proven to apply to chronic infection. So we keep trying to do something else, but, uh, but right. we just don't have something that is practical. Okay. Let's go on to the next case. It looks like we'll get through these. We're right on time. It's going well. So. This is a 34-year-old woman diagnosed with HIV four weeks ago. As part of her evaluation for pregnancy, her CD4 count is 82. Her viral load is 76,000. Anybody ever see a case like this? Okay. Um, and no other significant medical condition. She's 12 weeks pregnant by head circumference and date of LMP. Genotype is wild type, and now we get our hepatitis people involved. She's got hepatitis B surface antigen positivity. Creatinine is 1.5. Estimated creatinine clearance is 60. She's HLA B5701 negative. Which drugs would you include in her regimen as the nucleoside backbones? Or not use a backbone. Go ahead and vote. Is that Dallas? Yeah. Uh, you, you had to know that one. All right. Ah, so there's some guideline followers here. Susan Cohn fans. Zidovian 3TC. It's all over it. Um, some people would use Tenofovir FTC and then a smattering of others. Susan, maybe you can defend the guidelines. Uh, the guidelines are changing. Um, I mean, yes, um, for many years they really pushed and still do push um, ZDV. Um, most data and all that, that that go behind it, but certainly um, other uh, residents are um, 
considered appropriate as well. I think in this case, the most salient issue is her, is her hepatitis B status. And um, if you don't adequately control that, as well as her HIV, you're going to get in trouble with rebound nose problems. So um, even though her kidneys are not optimal, um, I think you need to deal with H, H, um, hepatitis B as well as hepatitis C. So, um, Either two or three. Can, can you use it? And I, I don't know. Can you use entecavir in pregnancy? Entecavir? No. Yeah. No. No. So, Category so, C. So tell us the consequences from your perspective as a hepatologist of using zidovudine 3TC in a woman who's got hepatitis B serpent antigen positive. What happens when we do that? Well, first, we don't know enough about the hep B because uh, the the immune status, uh, whether she's undergone control with an e-antigen, e-antibody conversion would probably be important to know, as would the Hep, hep B DNA uh, viral load at this point in making a decision. Uh, we could choose to uh, not treat it at this point and, and simply follow the Hep B uh, through the pregnancy and, uh, and just deal with the HIV. Uh, making sure that the child ends up with uh, both vaccination and HBIG. Um, but if the disease is active, if viral load is high, then certainly by the third trimester you'd want to get involved with a regimen that will help reduce viral load and reduce risk of infection. So in that scenario, though, let's say she started on zidovudine 3TC, what's the likelihood by, the, by term that she'd have hepatitis B resistant to 3TC? Pretty unlikely. And uh, actually, 3TC is a good choice during pregnancy, okay. uh, even if you're going to change it later. Because I was under the understanding that 20 weeks of monotherapy with 3TC led to resistance, no? And a small percentage of patients. Uh, but, I mean, while 3TC exposure is nearly 100% at five years and HIV positives, at the end of a year, it's about 18 to 20%. Okay. Susanna, any other thoughts? No, I, I, I completely, I mean, obviously, he's been doing this a lot longer than I have, but I completely agree. And I think 3TC in this setting is a, is a great drug for her. And then ultimately, she's 34, depending on how many other kids she wants to have and that sort of thing. I think you could discuss changing her to a tenofovir-based you know, regimen. Um, but there's certainly no data to show that patients do better on dual therapy for hepatitis B. I know that's often an inclination. So what, but not how would you answer this necessary. question? How'd you, how'd I, I, number one. Was you put number one. Yes. Okay. What about um, intolerability of zidovudine in a pregnant woman? And to me, in my experience, there's a lot of nausea. I mean, and, and you could also, I mean, you could also use the, you know, uh, renal-adjusted tenofovir. Well, safely. actually, in her pregnancy clearance is above 50, so you don't right. have to even do that. You'd follow, but it's not a contraindication, right? So I, I, the reason I brought it up was because, as you heard from the panel, there's a lot of issues, right, going on. And I, I you know, sort of tongue-in-cheek made her viral load 76,000 in honor of ACTG 076, which is a study <laughs> that gave us this, this legacy of the AZT as part of every pregnancy regimen since the history of dawn of man and woman, right? So it's, it's, I think it's a tradition, no offense to the obstetrics literature, but once a randomized trial has been done, it's, it's, it's indelible, right? It would, it, you need another one to trumpet to really move forward. 
And that's why I think the guidelines continue to have zidovudine as the anchor drug. But when you, the, the recommendations are zidovudine with lopinavir, ritonavir, which will work. And it's pretty safe for the kid as far as that goes. But you can also have about 30% of the pregnant women hurling, you know, frequently. And that's not good. But so I think there's a lot of debate about it is what I'm trying to say. That's why I put it in there. So what are you going to use as the anchor drug? Remember, her, her CD4 count now is 86. So it's well below the 250 we talked about. And it's wild-type virus. And she's CCR5 trophy. Go ahead and vote. You know, keeping with the theme of unusual children's names, Rusty, right? Wasn't that his name? What? Richie, sorry. Rusty was Danny Thomas. So got it wrong. Okay, <laughs> sorry. So most people went with the guidelines, Susan. They went with lopinavir, ritonavir, despite my plea for absence of hurling. Um, how about nevirapine here? CD4 count 86, viral load 76,000. Okay, not okay. Wouldn't use it. Wouldn't go there. Not going to do it. George Herbert Walker Bush. Not going to do it. No. You do. You do Calitra. Okay. But Nevirapine's a pretty good drug. Okay. Yeah. I. I don't know. I mean, I think it, it, there's a lot of right answers here, actually. Uh, and but for some of these, there aren't really much data. The repliverine we talked about. Nelfinavir. What about that? We used to use that a lot. That's maybe a no-no now. I think many people um, are tempted to use it in pregnancy um, because it's well tolerated or they were on it and they just continued on it. Um, I think most people now will not use it. It's not as potent and it's a real problem uh, metabolism during pregnancy, higher doses and adjustments and things. I think it, um, the most data is uh, on um, uh, lopinvir and I think it, and some women tolerate it remarkably well. So it also comes in liquid, so you can have one little teaspoon, that's enough, a tablespoon, that's enough, twice a day. So depending on the person, I think many people would go with the most potent that has experienced pregnancy. Uh -huh. Although alexandrovir is once a day, it's probably better tolerated overall into the nausea and things. So right. it's, it's a debate. Are, are, and just to finish all this out, are the people who picked the Favarins with a 12-week gestation wrong? There is data suggesting preference is fine later in pregnancy, but I think 12 weeks is kind of borderline. Uh, I think if people do do that, I think they start something else, or um, I think it's too soon, personally. Um, okay. Because it's, it's about probably neural, not wrong, but... Well, it's about neural tube, right? And neural tube, based on my recollection, by eight weeks should be closed, right? And the data is really soft, right? It is soft. It's yeah, like so six cases in the world. Yes, yeah, so I don't think anyone, since there are so many wonderful choices, why you go there? Okay. All right. I'm just trying to be provocative here. Okay. 34-year-old um, woman now is diagnosed with tuberculosis, not pregnant. As part of the evaluation, she's found to be HIV infected. Look at that. Her CD4 count is the same as the last case. <laughs> Amazing what you can do with copy and paste. Except this time she started on a four-drug anti-TB. She's on INH and rifabutin, not rifampin. Gene, genotype of the HIV is wild type. At which time, after starting antiviral therapy, would you start anti-HIV 
therapy. Remember, her CD4 count is, what did I say, 82? So it's above 50, but less than 200. It's a very nuanced question here. Go ahead and vote. Your answer may be lost in space. Warning. Warning. <laughs> well, Robinson says, the answer is, whoops, oh, goodness gracious, I messed up. Oh, vote, vote again. <laughs> I warned myself right out of that. I just like the music so much I wanted to hear it one more time. Angela Cartwright was in this thing. That's, isn't that Danny Thomas's? Uh, yeah. Yeah. She was the, on the TV show. I can't get this to go. Can you guys make that happen for me? No? Okay, let's go back. We're going to have to go without the actual vote number, but um, who wants to take this on? There's two recent studies that sort of guide us a little bit. Suzanne, are you, are you familiar? Sure, sure. Happy to. Yeah, so I think, you know, in this setting, uh, the studies that we're going to talk about soon discuss the idea of um, uh, early versus delayed or even immediate versus early therapy. So starting the patient within two weeks versus um, waiting um, up to eight weeks, eight to 12 weeks, or even after the induction phase of TB therapy. And what they found was that, um, indeed, patients with the lowest CD4 count, less than 50, um, those patients actually benefited. So she's kind of right on the cusp, I would argue. Um, that, uh, that she may actually benefit from having more immediate or early uh, initiation of treatment. Those patients had higher rates of IRS, but that did not translate into higher mortality. So I would argue there are probably several answers on there that would be appropriate, but I think you'd want to start her within the first four weeks. Right. So these are two studies mostly out of Africa, uh, treating with antiretroviral therapy early versus late, meaning in the first two weeks versus eight to ten weeks or in the SAPID study, eight to 14 weeks versus four weeks. But the take-home point, there wasn't much difference in clinical outcomes, AIDS or death, if the CD4 count was above 50. But there was a little bit more iris if you treated a little bit earlier, but especially if the CD4 count was low. Um, so it really is a balance. So if her CD4 count was 50 or lower, you'd probably start in the first two weeks. Otherwise, you might wait and start treatment by, say, week 8 to 12 or 8 to 15. What, what about immediate versus two weeks? That I don't know. Um, and I'm not sure it would make a whole lot of difference. But if the patient's really symptomatic, I think most people would treat as, as soon as they could. Uh, and then, you're, then you've got the balance of four anti-TB drugs you know, that could cause some toxicity, and you're layering on top of that. It's a real clinical judgment. But you want to start as soon as possible with more advanced infection, HIV, more advanced symptoms. Uh, and, but watch for iris, I think, is the take-home point. It's kind of complicated. And then as far as what regimen would you use, um, she's on rifabutin. Uh, let's go ahead. And she's R5-tropic, this tells me. Um, let's go ahead and, and vote. Everybody thinks of the TV show, right? I think of the movie. The movie was great. All right. Kind of all over the map. Um, hmm, interesting. So really what we're asking is what has drug interactions? And so typically, anybody want to take this? or? No. I mean, it's typically anything with, with, with ritonavir is not going to really 
be so successful. So you're going to want to go to the non-nukes or maybe raltegravir here as a general rule of thumb. And ephedrine would be fine, and nevirapine in this case would probably be okay as well. You have to dose adjust a little bit. But the rule of thumb is that when there's ritonavir on board, um, it's going to mess up even the rifabutin to some degree. So that's, that's kind of – and the raltegravir, as far as I know, is, is okay because it's glucuronidated. Yeah. So that's and we're beginning to look also about something like this, so also then these um, contraception in addition – Right. And there are very little data known, and, and in terms of interactions with birth control pills and perhaps um, depo, um, we'll begin to understand that better, but I, I sort of favor uh, Raltegravir. Okay. And the rifabutin, though, is going to cause problems with oral contraceptives just in general, yes. so you've got to be real careful. And that's true with depo as well, right? We think. We think. Okay, good. So it's really a delicate time. Um, but you got to treat. You got to treat it. Um, so I think this is our last case, and we've got about five minutes left, so we're on time. Um, this is a prelude for the talk you're going to hear right after lunch about heart, not, not H-A-A-R-T, but H-E-A-R-T, cardiovascular issues. This is a 40-year-old guy who was recently diagnosed at a community testing event. He's had hypertension in his own treatment. He's had hyperlipidemia, hyperlipidemia which is not treated. And he's been a smoker for the last 30 years. Family history of obesity and diabetes. On exam, he's got hypertension despite his medicines. He's a little overweight. BMI, I don't know what that would be, around 30, 28, something like that. Uh, cervical lymphadenopathy. HIV RNA is 52,000. High CD4 count. LDH, LDL, sorry, 165. HDL, 30. Cholesterol, uh, total is high. A hemoglobin A1C is a little bit elevated. Um, liver enzymes and renal tests are normal. So you plug that into your Framingham risk calculator that you're going to hear more about in that talk this afternoon. So this is to see what you know before the talk, I guess. And you plug all that in, and you get a risk score of greater than 30%. Greater than 30%. As an aside, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll print this off on the computer, and then I'll turn the smoking answer from yes to no, and then bring that into the patient's room and sort of show this is if you're smoking and this is if you're not. But this guy is, so there you go. So he agrees to think, he agrees to start, do you, would you start antiretroviral therapy here? He's got a really high CD4 count and a viral load that's kind of middling. Go ahead and vote. I haven't heard that in a long time. I'm supposed to tap my foot sideways, you know, like Fred McMurray did. Okay, so most people would, only a few wouldn't. Thoughts from the panel? Is this a good time to treat this guy, assuming he wants to, if you want him to? Uh, Benigno, what would you do here? So this is an example of uh, some of those contributing factors that I would take into consideration, and I would definitely treat him. Yeah. If he's ready, if, he, if I have that sense that he is ready to adhere to treatment, yes, okay. I would agree. And we'll dig into this a lot more in the talk after lunch. Um, and now you have to choose a backbone. You're going to put him on a statin for sure, right? You're going to try to convince him to quit smoking. You're going to treat his, his HIV. Um, which backbone would you use, tenofovir FTC, abacavir 3TC, AZT3TC, or choose a nucleoside sparing regimen? 
Hmm. <laughs> Took me a second. All right. That was Herman Munster. Okay. And uh, most people went with, so 6% went with the Baca beer. What, where does the status of the controversy? Yes, no. Does it cause heart attacks? I don't think so. What would you say? I don't think so. You don't think so? It certainly wasn't seen in, in, in the ACTG data when they combined things, but it certainly was seen at this other it still makes me nervous, though, when I start. Okay. So these are, these are data that were just published or put out from the FDA. This was at CROI. And what they – so the, the thing that got all the started was the DAD study, and they looked at this and said, well, gee, it looks like current abacavir, as opposed to not a history of, but a current abacavir use leads to increased myocardial infarctions, and sometimes that occurs in the lowest risk group even. Um, but when they looked at the total of randomized trials, because remember the DAD was not randomized, they really didn't see any difference overall that all trials risk was, was basically a wash. Um, and so a lot of people are putting more faith in this because it was based on randomized data. And remember, since it was on therapy is where the risk happened, not from six months beyond historically, right? So that means on therapy. All the patients in these studies were on therapy. Um, that's what that's this I thought sort of solved the controversy until last week when the VA published a study that said oops yeah yeah we're seeing it again I, I don't know thoughts I'm just confused I think those with the history of heart disease at the time were being put on the back of it I think it was a gentler ah, so I, I, I worry about the population not, not being equal right so that what, what, what Susan referring to is something called a selection or channeling bias that when you're the clinician taking care of a person, not in a randomized situation, but you see that they might have, you know, this, this problem with uh, tenofovir or whatever, you might randomize, might shunt them over in a different direction. So just, I think this might be the last question on time, is what third agent would you use in this setting? Is there a particular one you prefer? Go ahead and vote. No. Okay. All right. Most people went with the Fovrins. Um, only a few went with Nevirapine. All right. We're learning. The CD4 count was 750 or something. Rotegravir, I, I don't know that there's necessarily a right or wrong here. Um, all right. So here's the, here's the wrap-up. Um, recommendation to begin earlier in asymptomatic persons as informed by increasing evidence of the harmful effect of uncontrolled viremia that you heard about all morning. Uh, increased evidence association of non-AIDS events that you're going to hear about the rest of the day. Availability of less toxic and more potent regimens. But unfortunately, most of our patients are diagnosed after their CD4 counts below 500, so a lot of this discussion is moot, right? So we've got to redouble our efforts to do test and treat, both for prevention and other, other purposes. So I think I kept us mostly on time. There might be some questions here uh, that folks want to go over, but I'll turn it back over to John. Do you want to just do a couple questions? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I have some here, but if you want to come to the microphone, anything that we talked about you want to challenge or push back on, or uh, please. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
greatest statins. And it's fibrins, it raises all the lipid fractions, including mm -hmm. the LDL. Might help them to have a higher HDL. Now we can't use niacin anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's my impression it also attenuates the effect of statin by increasing the metabolism of drugs like Lipitor. Right. So um, I chose Rotegravir because I thought it would be several ways, a more lipid-friendly regimen. This guy that you'd really like to see is LDL registering below 100. Any right. Comments on that? And his HDL was low to, as well, so you want to see that come up. Yes. Thank you. I, th I agree with you. I think that's a, a rational choice. Activation. Okay. Oh, sorry. Any rethinking in the context of our new information about immune activation, about vaccinating people with new diagnosis of HIV? Benigno, that's a good question for you. you so vac vaccinating people? Right. Uh, you mean routine vaccines? When we vaccinate, we induce immune activation. Oh, Correct. I see. I see. Does and this we know is bad for HIV? Any new thinking about this? Um, I, I am not aware of any data to indicate that there is uh, there are any clinically significant adverse consequences of routine vaccines in HIV infection, either during acute infection or during chronic infection. I think, uh, I, I think there's actually been studies that show there isn't any effect, right? Well, well it, it's when people are not on therapy, right? That, that's, that's where that historical thing came from. So if you have somebody not on treatment, you vaccinate, you create more activated cells in response to the vaccine. That sort of causes a spike in the viremia. I think that's what you're referring to, right? But if somebody's on therapy, you, you, obliter you obliterate that. So you want people to be on therapy. You want to give them their regular vaccines. Live vaccination still is a question. So, Joe, you want to comment? So, and, and also, just to support the points, in, in the old studies without treatment, the, the vire, there was an increase in viremia after immunizations, but it was transient and then went back after eight weeks or so to where it was before with no effect on the overall long-term evolution of the virus. And that was not on therapy, though, yeah, correct? Not on therapy. Right. So that's, that's kind of... But I on think therapy, that's, you would your, your, your recollection is accurate, but all those data were generated before therapy was around. And live vaccines, I think most people are even saying that's okay now if they need it, but then the CD4 counts are in the, on the upper level and their viral loads are suppressed. So I think there's still some okay to that. Let's go with some really quick questions. We only have a few minutes, but Susan, one of the, one of the audience members asked um, about a postpartum woman, peripartum, gets an antiretroviral therapy, does great, but she pre-therapy was an elite controller. Right, and now would that change what you did about continuing the therapy? See if we count was high to begin with. What do you think? Yes, that was a, a particular question. I'd sort of work with her and try to figure out what her thoughts were, how tall or how tall will taking meds were for her. Um, I mean, given what um, John said about they're all eventually going to have. Um, depressions in their CD4 counts over time. It's going to really take a while. And if, if the third reason that hard for her to take it, I think I'd encourage her to stay on. But uh, there's always a choice. Okay. Anything about nutritional supplements or antioxidants or, I guess I'll throw in for the hepatologist, milk thistle. I don't know. Any kind of nutritional stuff that, that people would recommend as a rule of thumb to help the immune system or... No, patients come to us a lot, though, with that, right? And I usually just try to figure out if it's doing harm. 
And if it's not, I say, you know, knock yourself out, but not literally. But anyway, uh, so I don't think there's anything scientific to support it as a rule of thumb. Um, on case four, which just to remind you, that was the acute seroconversion syndrome. When, when we were talking about rationale for continuing, 96% of the audience said they continued. So nobody quoted the SMART study. Uh, is that a part of the reason as well that folks yeah. stop, stop and stay? But you don't want to start. Um, what is the place of Mirabarock? in a CCR5-tropic naive patient? Good question for you. Okay. Well, I mean, he said he that to me because I, I, I was the lead author on, on the study that did this. And um, when there's R5, when it's truly R5, the activity is, is comparable to a fibrin's. And the side effect profile is really pretty nice in a way. It doesn't have um, any of the nighttime nightmares, et cetera. The problem is, in my mind, is the, R, is the expense of the R5 assay. That when you have in front of you a patient in options, and then you have a choice of spending an extra $1,000 plus on an assay that would let you use Mirabarock, I think it's hard to justify that. Now, um, my understanding is that, that, that Vive, who now has taken over Mirabarock, is providing to state ADAPs uh, a voucher, in essence, that can get that for you. And if it comes back R5, I think it's a fine drug. I think you could use it. It's a twice daily, which is a little bit of a disadvantage. There's new studies that are coming out to look at it back again at once daily. They chose twice daily based on phase one, two data, and that's how they went forward in the pivotal trials. But I think in an IU patient, it would be interesting to see with better R5 tropism testing, which they didn't have in the very first study, more accurate data there, and once daily, I think it could be a drug. The Europeans are using a genotype to, right. uh, to make the decision whether it's R5 or not. And that genotype is a lot less expensive yeah. and is pretty much as accurate. I'm not sure what they're going to use in, the, in this upcoming study, but that's an interesting question. I think there's also more data that's showing that rapid drops in, in general viral loads um, with Mirabarak is one of the other agents more than other drugs. And, Depending if you're, if someone has to deliver quickly and they've just found out in, in the last week or two of pregnancy, maybe something to consider because of, because of the rapid uh, job. Okay. Here's another question we're not going to get into, so it's, I'm glad they, somebody raised this, but the issue about bone density and what about the long-term use of drugs like tenofovir, et cetera, especially in women? Well, so it happens, you know, there is an, there's a, a, a immediate loss, a um, few percent, um, seems to stabilize out, um, and I don't know of any studies that show that it's associated with really clinical adverse outcomes. I, I don't think it's a really important issue. I think it's interesting with, with the prevention data that um, was presented at CORE that some of the men, even before they started tenofovir, had lower than, yeah. than normal. From HIV. Um, yeah. For prevention of HIV. So I think there's a lot we don't know. Um, right. And I certainly wouldn't use that as a major reason not to use to enough of you at this point, but All right. I may tell. Yeah. Well, there, there also Kim. is an issue of patients with, uh, with advanced liver disease uh, have a, a process of vitamin D deficiency and bone right. loss, and all of those should undergo regular DEXA scans. Yeah, and we didn't bring up vitamin D, but there's a whole new guideline that's out from the Endocrine Society just about a week or two ago. There also was an IOM report, and basically that if the, bone, if the vitamin D levels are below 20, 
by the 25-hydroxy, then, then that's viewed as deficient and deserves replacement. And then I just have to refer you to the article because there's all kinds of different depending on the age and the sex of how much vitamin D you use. But uh, I think that is an emerging area that you kind of keep your eye on. And it's especially common in hepatitis C patients, right? I mean, just really but, al but also a concern about, um, you know, the, some cardiovascular signal. Um, I should ask Wendy. I guess she's not here. Wendy's um, in the back. Uh, you uh, can maybe address this in your talk. Wendy, folks, are you going to Calcium supplements and cardiovascular disease. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that maybe. We have time for maybe one more question. Um, and they're kind of, one of the audience members is kind of calling us out and saying, you know, here you are, you're all gung-ho to treat acute infection, but the guidelines, there hadn't been much new data, right? Uh, and the guidelines, for the most part, have said refer to research study, which is kind of a cop-out because, you know, you know, don't know what to do, refer to research, which is always good, but you might not have that in your neighborhood. So what changed? Why are we so strongly advocating treating during acute infection? I think we did, we've just seen more and more the, the evidence that, um, and we're extrapolating from a bunch of studies, but evidence that untreated HIV, re, uh, HIV replication is bad for the body, um, and I think we're kind of moving in that direction. Right. And then, Joe, I'll, I'll give this final question to you, and the question is about can testosterone replacement in men help with frailty? We, well, the short answer is we don't have the data on that. Okay, uh, we're actually looking at testosterone levels in our in the max now to see if they differ between frail and non-frail individuals, but uh, I don't know the answer. Low T. <laughs> Low T. Yeah. <laughs> now that there's a commercial for it. I'm sure uh, it's all proper uh, at this point.